Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 8 of Shut Up and Wrestle, which is going to be the beginning of a series I've been talking about where I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some employees, former employees from Titan Tower and from WWE, uh, who I worked with and who have some very interesting stories uh, to tell that uh, will give you a really interesting perspective, I think, on the business that maybe you never considered before. So we'll get to that in a minute. Before we get to my guest, a few things that I want to talk about here. Um, of course, top of mind still, especially in the world of uh, old school wrestling, we are definitely all mourning the loss of uh, one of the greatest of all time, I feel comfortable saying, in Scott Hall, um, also known as Razor Ramon, who, of course, you know, uh, passed away last week. Uh, a major blow to the wrestling community. Talked a bit about it on the PWI podcast uh, as well. Um, on that list, you know, when people talk about the greatest uh, wrestlers who never were world champion, right? A lot of people like to talk about people like Roddy Piper. Uh, for sure on that list, maybe the top name on that list. And I would absolutely put Scott Hall on that list, one of the greatest, and um, could do it all. You know, I got to know him a little bit at WWE, and what I was struck by with him is that despite what you hear about personal demons and this, that, or the other thing, he was a genuine, warm, kind human being at heart, really, truly. And it was uh, encouraging to see that he'd gotten over those demons and really had gotten his life on track. And that really the, the last 20 years for him were a gift as far as I see it, because people had written him off 20 years ago um, that he was going to be one of those wrestling tragedies. And, you know, to get 20 more years out of life, um, even though his passing still is an untimely tragedy, um, he got to experience a lot during that time. Um, you know, there was an analogy that I made on Twitter where I talked about how, you know, in the, if the click were the rat pack and Shawn Michaels was Frank Sinatra, you know, the, the unquestioned leader and the talent of the group and the most famous one and all that, uh, Scott Hall would have been the Dean Martin, you know, the cool one, the one who, uh, enjoyed life more, who, who really, uh, may have had just as much, if not more talent, than anyone else in that group, but um, just chose not to get involved as much with the politics, chose to enjoy himself. Um, and, you know, at times maybe didn't take it quite as seriously. And uh, that's not always a bad thing. You know, there are other things in life. And I found that Scott Hall had a very unique perspective. So uh, the wrestling community has lost one of the great ones in Scott Hall. And we remember him here at Shut Up and Wrestle. I also want to mention uh, every now and then I get things sent to me, and, and this is something that is very cool. So I wanted to briefly talk about it. 
for those of you that used to love kind of old school wrestling card games, wrestling uh, dice and card kind of games, um, I have something for you. It's called Micromania, MTW Micromania. And it's a project that's being developed uh, by a company called Micro Titans Limited, headed by Stephen Dalton. And they were kind enough to send me a sample. Uh, really, it happened through Inside the Ropes, one of the magazines that I write for. And um, I had a lot of fun. I got to tell you, I don't say this about it, just about anything. But uh, I played a bunch of rounds of it with my son and we had a blast. You know, it's a real throwback to the old kind of role playing wrestling card and dice games of the past. Uh, as I said, it's kind of in the Kickstarter phase right now. So you can support this project if you want or if you want to find out more about it, it can be found on Twitter at Micro Titan Mania. Um, Kickstarter, if you look up Micro Titans and Micromania, you'll find it there if you want to give them support. They're in the process of fine-tuning this game and really getting it distributed and getting it out there to, out there to the public. Uh, it has the Brian Solomon seal of approval, so I encourage you to take a look if you are so inclined. Um, also want to mention that I have been in the studio now officially recording the audiobook for uh, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And it's been a fun experience. I put some snippets of my studio time on Twitter and Instagram, which you can find if you want to see what I've been doing. But um, I'm really putting my heart and soul into this. It's the first audiobook I've ever done. And I'm kind of flattered that they allowed me to do the audiobook for my own book. So um, it will be coming out a little bit after the print book, and I'll keep people updated on that. Probably by the time this comes out, I will have just wrapped up recording it. So it's been a great experience. Now, let's get to my guest. Her name is Deborah Jazway, which you're going to hear more about. She was a creative director, an art director, and she worked in the creative services department at WWE uh, about from 1990 to 2005. Now, the reason I'm doing this, as I've said many times before, is that the people who worked within that company uh, really have stories to tell. And so I ask you to keep an open mind here because, of course, you know, Deborah is not some famous wrestling celebrity. Neither am I. But we have stories from our time working in that company, and some of them can be very fascinating. So I, I really think that this is going to give you a different kind of perspective. Um, you know, Deborah was responsible for coming up with the name China for Joni Laura. Um, Deborah helped design those classic Royal Rumble collage posters of the 90s that everybody loves so much. You know, Deborah had an interesting kind of relationship, uh, working friendship with Classy Freddie Blassie, which you're definitely going to hear about uh, during the hour of our show, uh, which was, shall we say, certainly of its time in the wrestling business. So these are the kind of experiences and stories that we as former employees have. So, uh, again, if you take a listen with an open mind, I think you will be pretty fascinated at uh, some of the things that Deborah has to say. So I'll take you to that right now. Okay, so right now, it's my pleasure to welcome someone to Shut Up and Wrestle that I think you're all going to find very interesting. And it's kind of the beginning of what I was talking about, uh, which is telling the stories of some of the employees of WWE and of Titan Tower that the average fan may not be aware of. So uh, this may not be someone who's as well known to you as some of my previous guests, 
but it doesn't matter because by the end of this thing, I guarantee you, you're going to understand why we, we did this. So um, her name is Deb Jasway, and she was a member of the creative services department at WWE. And we'll be explaining exactly what that department did, but um, her titles ranged from design artist to art director to senior creative director. And she was involved with a lot of things that uh, even if you don't know who she is, you definitely know what she worked on. So we'll be talking about that. So Deb, my old friend, Deb, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. That was a really cool introduction. And no one will know who I am, especially by my current name, because when I worked in uh, in the industry, I was uh, by my married name, my old married name. So I was I was Debbie D. It was DiGirolamo. It was an Italian name, and everybody just called me Debbie D. Our the head of the department, her name is uh, is Debbie Bonanzio, so we called her Debbie B. So I was Debbie D. And I kept a very low profile, so you probably won't. <laughs> no one would know me, but that's how you know the, the ones that kind of lay low are the ones that always have the best stories because I always kept my ears open. Keep right. your ears open and your mouth shut. That's that was the the way you got by, and that was yeah. my most stuff. And it, it even that will only take you so far, right? As both of us can attest. Uh, but I, I will say that um, you were there. I didn't say this in the intro, but I want to make it clear now. You were there from 1990 to 2005. That's is that's that's right. Yep, I started okay. just before. I want to say it was WrestleMania in Toronto um hogan and ultimate warrior mm -hmm. yeah i just came on board i had no idea i was even walking into um professional wrestling I, I applied for a job i thought it was some sort of like athletic wardrobe kind of company like like i'm thinking crew socks and when i walked <laughs> into the interview there was like all these you know three by five posters of the ultimate warrior and all this neon like what the hell is this and it's like wow it, this is professional wrestling i didn't even know they were in stanford so right. yeah, so 1990. That's when I started. And to be to be clear, oh, and by the way, when you said Debbie D, that that did bring back memories because that's how I always knew you too, Debbie D. Debbie and D. then when <laughs> when your name changed, we didn't know what to call you anymore. Would we call you Debbie J, Debbie Jazz? I don't I don't know what to call yeah, you. Deb, Deb Jazzway. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's funny. I haven't used Debbie D in so long, but that's purely my Tower Days name. Right, and <laughs> uh, so. Just for people that don't know, um, who may be listening, what what was the uh, role of the department that you were in, the creative services department? What did they do? Yeah, well, creative. Um, I mean, again, when I first started, it was called the art department. Basically, right. if you needed a poster made, an ad for the for the newspaper, um, anything from your your ring card uh, insert into the uh, the the takeaway souvenir uh, programs. So it was the art department. And as the company grew and grew and grew, it became uh, divided into someone who just designs for say the merchandise, all the t-shirts. And then we had another team that designed the licensing where we did all of the action figures and developed the, all the home video. And then my group that I worked in and, and ended up being a creative director for was promotion and marketing. So anything that involved any of the pay-per-view events, any of the, sometimes even the story writing that went into the pay-per-view events, but it was a month to month key art that we developed and it was based on the talent who was on the main card. And then we built a visual around that. And that was my little, my little area of expertise with my team. So, so basically were you, and correct me if I misinterpret, you know, I worked with you for seven years, you would think I would know better, but um, 
were you then involved in creating, helping to create kind of the looks of, of the wrestlers there? Was that a part of what you did? Um, that was way, actually, we did have a part in that. This is again, very old school days when they had costumes Yeah, you know, I with, a, with an amazing illustrator that would not only come up with some of their, their character names, but some of their costumes as they kind of grew into the, you know, the attitude area that wasn't, so much our, our thing. What we kind of built upon was the look and feel of the pay-per-view event. Okay. You know, yeah, who was featured? What was the theme? We would come up with pay-per-view names. You know, we, I, I can't tell you how many times we'd have to research how many words you can use for aggression. <laughs> you know, like I, always, I have a thesaurus to this day. It's yellowed, yellowed pages, but, you know, we would thumb through and say, okay, that we've got to create some kind of an angry, aggressive battle. Um, and you had to like look for new words to say that. And we came up with names for pay-per-view events. And so that was the, any, the visual creatives that revolved around anything that was promotion or marketing. Is it true that you couldn't use the word violence? Because I always remember hearing that, that, we, that it wasn't allowed to be used. That's why aggression was used so much because they couldn't well, more, say more violence. Than likely, or we probably just used it once and couldn't use it again. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe you that. have to think of different ways to say it. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think there was ever a time when we were, when we were really violent. That was more um, the other wrestling factions. Yeah. Not, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, when I, see, when I think of violence, I think of like the Freddie Blassie era where there's like, you know, blood and gore and, uh, you know, razor blades and, and that sort of thing. So we didn't, we didn't, I don't think any of the time that we were there were particularly bloody. Oh, actually, who, who am I kidding? I, no, I'm thinking of like Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, there's, we had plenty of our share of good blood and gore. Never mind. I'm well, off on a <laughs> No, no, but that's a good point because when you yeah. started, because I was watching, you know, WWE a few years before when you started, I don't want to say, well, I mean, I was in high school at the time that you started there, but <laughs> but um, at that in that era, there was an edict where there was no blood. And that's when it was very kind of kid friendly. But then as it went, like you said, more into the attitude era, they started getting a little bit more violent. Um, but you, you mentioned Austin. So, you know, I don't know if you know this, but you know how, um, you know, he started right as the ringmaster. And then he became Stone Cold Steve Austin. And there's this famous story that he tells where I guess it, it maybe it was your department or something where they came up with a whole list of possible names and personas for him. And he hated all of them because they wanted something that was cold related. So they were yeah. giving him things yeah. like, you know, the or something corny. Yeah. I, I, no, actually, we don't take credit. For that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know because that's a famous that's, story. That's TV studio. That's them on their end. Although we did, um, actually, I, I named China. It was it was right before her. She was coming out into the ring. It was, I want to say it's the weekend before a pay-per-view where she debuted. And they gave us um, like a, an hour to come up with something. I remember having a book of celebrity baby names. And we were just, I remember it was like after dark and we're like China Phillips. So like, yes, China, that's a good name. It's kind of like it's delicate, but yeah, it's, it's cool. And they went with that. So in a pinch that's what creative services did though we would like we would jump into anything how did i not know that i never knew that 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 you uh came up with that name that's that's really well, really cool and actually lots of lots of pay-per-view campaigns were built not by me but by our whole team like how it looked what the taglines were everything about it and then they would play that into sometimes the, the main look and feel of say you know the event so we had a, a lot to do with the with the pay-per-views, with the live events, the uh, 
for, many, for many, many years. <laughs> so what was the first big, well, if, if you remember, what was the first big project that you worked on that you remember being a part of when you started? Gosh. Well, again, because I started as, a, as basically a kid. So I was more like the, I worked on the licensing boards. When you, like, say um, they made a, a, a pop, an ice cream candy uh, sandwich, and it had a picture of um, Hulk Hogan on it. We would actually have a board with his an illustration. There'd be a tissue layer over that, and there would be colored keys so that we can send it to the printer, and that's how they created the packaging. That was my first job. Was like literally coloring in the the tracing paper. So it was like I, I it, was, it was like the juvenile thing that we did, but it was important back then. The whole industry evolved while I was at wrestling. It was like we started as the basic print uh you know um paste ups and then the whole industry changed we got computers so i look at the stuff like the, when i say big projects that i work on like it's nothing that i want to probably brag about because <laughs> they're from an artistic creative you know graphic design point of view um i would say something that um we actually my team won an award for was a no mercy pay-per-view event poster featuring kane in his new mask it was very dark very black um, excellent logo treatment and we actually won an art director's award for it here in Connecticut which is like a funny story because we never ever got the credit that we always wanted as an art department mm. I know I'm kind of rambling on but it's just like what's key about like being in my group no one ever respected anyone anything that we did because it was wrestling so we were actually you know we, we were always like the you know never getting the credit that we deserve and we'd gone to the art director um show where they you know, were giving out you know awards and however and our our poster was framed it was literally on the floor leaning against the wall like they didn't even hang it <laughs> but we won a broadcast design award for that and we actually got flown out to i think new orleans or something to like receive the award so that was actually a big deal and again this is because wrestling was becoming more mainstream like the attitude era was so big and every we were we were all over t-shirts and everyone knew it. So it's like we were getting more recognized and it was less, you know, fake. It was more entertainment. And I think that was really where we evolved, our, our, our medium evolved was when we became more entertainment. And I think we got more flashy. And I mean, from what we did basically with our, with our computers, what we were able to achieve the standpoint so i honestly brian i could not tell you like one great thing that i worked on okay i will <laughs> <laughs> go for it okay actually this is one of our my, one of my happiest memories okay um we did a special olympics event it was in new haven connecticut very early 90s i remember it was either uh diesel or sean i think it was diesel had just become champion so you could probably figure out the year that was 94 sean michaels <laughs> and we were taking, we took a school bus, all of us down with, with a couple other like B-card wrestlers to meet with the athletes, the, the Special Olympics athletes. And as they came through this parade of like all of their little countries, they were meet, they had a meet and greet with our wrestlers and they were absolutely blown away by seeing these people, these, these superstars that they emulated. And it made me for the first time feel so proud of what I did and how it was such on a world stage how appreciative people were of what I did. So actually that's like one of my happiest stories still about wrestling. That is a great one though, because, you know, I found a lot of the same thing I think that you found where from the point of view, except being in the, you know, publications department with the magazines is that 
people, again, they just don't really want to consider it to be writing or anything worth respecting. You know, I worked with a bunch of people that this wasn't their first rodeo. I mean, my editor, Mike Fazioli, was the managing editor of ESPN magazine. Our publisher, Barry Werner, was the sports editor of the New York Daily News. Um, Barry, Barry. Yeah, Barry and yeah, right. Yeah. Fellow, fellow Aerosmith fan, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, I went to see Aerosmith. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know you did. And, and all, and Aaron Feigenbaum, AKA Aaron Williams, my, my fellow writer there was a P he got his job because he was doing his doctoral dissertation on, on, on wrestling and, and they got to know him. So what I mean is like, you know, it's, it's not always what meets the eye and it's a shame that people don't take the work seriously because it's still work. The other thing that I found though, and you could tell me if this was your experience, I feel like the one criticism I mean, I could have several, but one of the criticisms of the company was that they don't give the credit to the people like any other entity of entertainment has credits, right? Where you can see everybody that worked on things. And I don't just mean credit on the TV shows, but even I mean, we were spoiled because the magazines do have credits. A magazine has a mass a masthead. You could see who worked on it. But like you guys all had to be nameless and i just think that I, I i wish that that's something i don't know if it's just a wwe thing or just a wrestling thing i wish that's something that they would think more about doing which is giving real credit to the specific people that do all this work that is an excellent excellent point excellent point i mean you know i think we all just knew that we were part of something you know you're a part of a family um whether that has negative connotations these days back then it you really did feel like you were you were definitely part of a family and you, you wanted to see it succeed no matter what so yeah you, they didn't have to get throw many credit they took really i'll say this they took very good care of of their employees i, they, I was very well taken care of so i, I always was respected um i always enjoyed what i did um always kept a low profile as i said you probably never heard about me um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, they don't have to roll credits at the end and give me props. They they took they took good care of me over the years. So happy to be a part of it now. I, I always say I've never I've never left there with bad feelings or anything like that. Um, there, I always speak in present tense and present terms. Like we, I always say we when I refer to what the industry is doing, whether they're doing well or not. I, I I still take a lot of pride in my my tenure there. You know, I I was part of that little circle yeah 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 and and i think the interesting thing about our experiences is that we from doing this i mean it's almost like if you went to work for disney or you worked for a movie studio or something we are not celebrities right and there's a lot of people like us who but we had these experiences that almost defy explanation where you're crossing paths and rubbing elbows with um, very notable people. And, and when it comes to the wrestling business, they can sometimes be very strange people. And you're having these, these experiences that it, it becomes even difficult to explain to people unless you've been in the industry, you know? Yeah. Well, you just take it for granted. It's like, this is the entertainment industry. You know that right. you're part of it. It's like, it's, 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 it's like the, a traveling road show. It's a little bit of, of a carnival, you know, it's a little circus. I mean, I don't know if you remember Bob Collins, Oh, sure. Yeah. Bob Collins uh, uh, was, if I remember right, he was the VP of live events. Was that right? Or more or less, but he was basically his latter years there only in charge of like WrestleMania. So that right. 
Yeah. And he had a, a Ringling Brothers background, I yes. believe. Yes. At, I mean, he, in fact, he, I think he retired down in like Sarasota. But I remember working on um, our first fan festival. I couldn't tell you, I, I was in New York. I couldn't tell you what WrestleMania it was. I can't remember what year, but it was our very first fan festival. It was very, I mean, talk about what creative services did. We built the fan festivals, you know, which is had, now, uh, which is now called access, right? That's the thing they, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And I, I was behind a curtains blowing up helium balloons, <laughs> you know, to make this event happen. It was very, you know, put together. Uh, I couldn't remember when it was, it was early, probably mid nineties. I think the first fan fest was, uh, WrestleMania 10 at the Garden, I think. Yeah, I know it was in that, New York. Yeah, that would have been 94. Yeah. Wow, okay. But that's what we did. We had, like, you know, we built, like, carnival games, and we, we you know, we, it's it was very kind of, you know, podunk, <laughs> but yet amazing, I'm sure. And I remember Bob Collins addressing all of us before we opened it. It was the very first one. He got up on the steps, and he dressed the whole crowd of volunteers and said, you know, this is show business. And I think that's the first time it hit me. Like, yeah, I'm part of something that's pretty big. And it was really exciting to, you know, see it from the fans' perspective and, uh, yeah, and, and be part of making that happen. From, like, making signs and, you know, that's what the creative did. Like, anything that had to be done, if it wasn't scripted, like writing scripts and, you know, designing costumes and being behind the camera, anything that was creative was done within our, our team. A very lean and mean team, too. We had a small group. Bob Collins, that that's a name for me because I, I used to, what's that? Wink. He used to be a, a ring announcer. He'd wear like a like a smoking jacket. Yes. Wink. I can't remember if they called him anything. Wink Collins or something. That was his name. The Wink. Yes. And he, I mean, I have to say, you know, because he was one of the senior vice presidents, and you know, I mean, sometimes people in that at that level can be kind of intimidating or cutthroat or whatever. But but Bob was without a doubt the nicest, especially vice president, nicest. In that whole company, he was always approachable, always friendly. Oh, and, my God. Yeah. yeah. And I think for, for fans, I'm trying to think, he was used on TV. I yeah, remember. I, yeah, I think he, I don't know if he was a special announcer, but he had that like right. plaid smoking jacket. That <laughs> That's it. right. I Wink. think it was, I'm trying, right. I'm thinking maybe he might've been involved. They were doing vignettes when it was supposed to be that the undertaker had vanished and nobody knew where he was. And that's when, that's when the um, imposter undertaker showed up, right. Whereas this fake undertaker. And I remember them doing these vignettes where um, it was like Elvis sightings, right. Except it was undertaker sightings and the host of these segments, people will correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it was Bob. And he just he just had a presence. Yeah, yeah. He had the flair for it, too. Yes, he did. His dad and, you know, you're right. He, he started with Ringling Brothers and I'm pretty sure that it was in his family. I think his dad had done that because he had a picture. Do you remember if you've been in his office, he had a big picture on the wall where he's riding one of the Ringling Brothers elephants and he's like 10 years old. Yeah, no doubt. I mean? That's why he went back to Florida. Sure enough, he used to send me Christmas cards every year up until I think maybe last year because I moved. Yeah, and uh, in fact, I had his message on my home voice machine. This is going back 2005 for the longest time, and it was like Debbie, this is Bob Collins calling, and he just like, and I kept it for so long because I just wanted to like play it over and over again, and then it got erased. But yeah, good, good, good people. I used to work with him whenever they would do. Um the WrestleMania 
advertorial sections for the local newspapers, you know, so like every year in whatever city WrestleMania was going to be, they would put together this insert that was going to go in the newspaper in that city. And it was all themed around WrestleMania. And so, of course, it fell under Bob's jurisdiction because WrestleMania promotion was his whole job. So he would bring me in. And I want to say I probably did it from like 2000 all the way through the whole time I was there, maybe six or seven years. Every WrestleMania, I would manage that entire section. I was so grateful to him for giving me that. Yeah. Yeah. And because I did the pay-per-view events and we did WrestleMania, that was our big you know we worked on that for i don't know how many months out of the year when we weren't doing everything else and uh yeah i worked very closely with bob um and howard finkel as well like he's another like guy that like i stayed in touch with after i was out of the company like he still like would see him on the train in stanford and he was another kind of one of those like just good not so much behind the scenes i mean he was he was an announcer but those like those relationships that you have with the people that are mostly men, huge admiration and respect for these guys. It's like, you see them in the office, they're just regular guys, you know, yes. you have a job, they have a job to do. You see them on TV or if they're doing vignettes, it's a whole different thing, but they're just good. I've, I've met some really strong, solid, admirable people. I would say most, most of them were, I, I won't say anything bad about anybody. So that's, I'm not, not going to happen. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not that kind of podcast. Don't worry. We're not, we're not trying to, to dig dirt. Um, but, but Fink is great. I mean, you know, I, I was really sad to hear when he passed and how he had been really ill because he was, and I've told this story in other places, one of the most supportive people to me there in, of anybody. And, and I, and, you know, I left there in 2007 and I ran into him at um, a convention, like a science fiction convention. You know how a lot of times they'll have wrestlers and people show up to do autograph signings. So he was at this, it was chiller theater in New Jersey. And I want to say it was maybe 20, it was about seven or eight years after I left WWE he called me by my name. I, I know this doesn't sound like a big deal, but I mean, like it's Howard Finkel. You know, he had a lot of things going on. I wasn't exactly his best friend or anything. He spotted me walking over to the table and he called me over by my name. I mean, that just blew me away. He was such a down to earth guy. Yeah, definitely. He gave me tickets to see Bruce Springsteen once. <laughs> right. <laughs> he didn't go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Now, did um, you, yeah, well, go, go ahead. No. I was going to say, did you um, when you on on some of these um, shows and things where, like we said, sometimes how not everybody knew who did what. Did you ever have a, kind of an experience where a, a wrestler was extremely personally grateful to you for stuff that you'd done and expressed that to you? <laughs> well i could say that but let's condense it like a hundred million percent when i gotten on to an elevator with the rock and we were at it it was in canada and i'm like it was just me and him and the doors closed and i'm like all out of breath i'm like hi i'm i'm, I'm debbie d i'm working creative services and i'm like i'm so you know i'm so happy to meet you and he goes i know who you are and i and and i know what you do and i'm like oh my god so that's basically <laughs> the best compliment I've ever had. So, I mean, otherwise, I don't think the wrestlers either understood what we did, appreciated what we did. I mean, you know, if you worked on a photo shoot with a wrestler, you really didn't like, you know, I didn't 
chit chat. You didn't like, you, you treated them like they had a job to do. You got them in and out because they didn't want to be there in the first place. You know, you made sure that they had food to eat. You found out what their travel schedule was like. Um, you know, is, is it their wife's birthday? You kind of found out as much background information as if you had to make small talk. But in my personal experience, I did not become very personal with any of the wrestlers whenever I worked with them. It's like, we have a job to do. And I always respected them the way they respected me. I don't think anyone, I mean, I know Stone Cold has been really like cool to like um, our merchandise department, like always gave them a lot of props because they did a lot of great shirts for him. I mean, Stone Cold was like one of those guys where he, I think he sent us like an appreciation plaque. We had it hung up in our, in our office. Um, like Mick Foley was really like really good to work with. He thanked us for being kind to him when he did a photo shoot with us. And he had just had a really bad cage match or something. He was hurting big time. It was probably like maybe one or two days later. And he had to lay on his bath. He had to lift his feet. He was like doing all these different positions for us. I knew he was in excruciating pain. And here I was thanking him profusely. And he was thanking us for just being professional with him and like getting through it quickly. So but other than that, I mean, I've never been like, you know, called out and singled out. I mean, just, we just, you know, I think we're just doing our job. That's what I mean. It's like, we don't run the credits because we're all in this together. You know, we all see the successes of all. It's like, I always feel like we're all a part of it, whether you're in the ring or you're outside of the ring. It was always like, we all shared in, in the success. So, you know, but again, like, like having the rocks, the I know who you are, I know what you do. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that was my, my best compliment from one of our superstars. I, I've talked about from time to time that feeling of when the wrestlers would already know who you were, like you were saying with The Rock or 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 in cases of Austin and Foley, how they recognized you for the work you did. You know, I would have that happened to me with Foley and it happened to me with Stone Cold. So they must, you know, so yeah. they were obviously paying attention, guys like that. You know, they would know me by because in my case, I had the benefit of my name being in the magazine, you know, my name. So the minute I said, oh, I'm Brian Solomon, that would go a long way because they knew they may not know what I looked like, but they knew the name from the magazine. Yeah, we're so we again, my group creative, we were behind the scenes, you know, right. we really were It's like we were getting it done and we didn't we didn't have a lot of interaction with talent unless it was in like a photo shoot. More, right. More one thing I definitely wanted to, to talk about a little bit, and, it, you know, it, as long as you're OK with talking about it, was uh, one of my favorite people in wrestling history who uh, I never really got to be around because he was already retired from the office by the time I got there. But uh, Freddie Blassie. Ah, was he was he retired from the office? Is that the official uh, story? Because. <laughs> well, maybe we uh, could maybe we could learn about that. But um, you're going to edit this and, and yes. I, won't, I won't, I won't say too much. I, let's see my role. Again, I was the low man on the totem pole. I was like, I used to, you know, work on putting the ring card together. I think is what it was called. And basically it was a rundown of who was wrestling in, in order. And that was slipped inside the programs that were at the live events. So I would literally get a call from Howard Finkel. He would run down the list to me or he would email it to me maybe at the time. And it would have, it would basically, it was the card. My job was then to print it out, walk across the street, because this is early 90s. We weren't even in the tower. And Freddie had an office in the other, in the, in the uh, original building where corporate was. And I would meet with him and I literally say, here's, here's what the card looks like. And he would go down and make sure it was in the correct order. 
and 99.9% .9 of the time, it was in the correct order. So there was really no reason for me to have to do that. So I, I just literally would meet with him, here's the card, and then I'm in his office and I would get this history lesson, which was absolutely golden. I mean, it was like me being new, it was the early 90s, so I was new to the company. He, I knew was legend and I had to, you know, I had to respect him, but he had in his office, floor to ceiling, framed pictures of everything that he's done in his career. So again, those magazines that I'd mentioned were, you know, with, with the bloody pictures that I was like, really all that gore from all the way that from him on his pro golf tour, you know, like uh, uh, appearances and, and um, what was her name? She was from the Dick Van Dyke show, Rosemary. Yes. She wore a ribbon. He, I don't know if he, well, if he was married to her, had a crush on her, dated her, but he was he had pictures of her, Regis Philbin. So long story short, it was a lot of like good old 60s, 70s icon stuff. So you would get to talking about that. I was like, that's really cool. And then in his office, he used to have a couch and it was an old grungy, probably white couch. And he would say, oh yeah, if I could get you on that couch, oh, what I do. Oh, one of these days, I'm going to get you on that couch. And I'd be like, I was 24. Four, you know, and I, and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> this is really awkward. <laughs> and I think the door was even closed at that time. So oh, I think God. somehow I had to either compensate for how am I going to do this every week with this, you know, this dirty old man. I have to respect the guy. Right. So we, we used to, um, he would pull out a Playboy magazine out of his desk drawer and we would read the jokes to each other. And I would love it. And he would love it. And it was like, okay, maybe it took like 20 minutes. I would be like, okay, I'm done. And <laughs> see you next week, Freddie. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And, and I'll leave it at that. And it's funny because every like once in a while, uh, a picture of me and him will pop up like it just did recently on my Facebook feed. And I would share it and say, oh, you know, I hashtag pencil net geek and hashtag, you know, legend. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, ooh, that was so inappropriate and it was like if that me too thing was you know then right. oh my god and here i am it's like i i i didn't know any better you know again i was i was young but it was like you just figured you had to respect the guy he's legend but and he would he'd be santa claus at yes. our Christmas, right he was santa claus <laughs> but as he got older i think he got in trouble for being inappropriate let's just say that okay yeah. I won't get into details, but then you didn't see Freddie anymore. He wasn't allowed to be in the office and he would be down in the mailroom. Oh, and with would, Howie, right. He used to hang out with Howie. They, down they would smuggle him in and then Howie would come and see me and say, Freddie's, Freddie's downstairs. You want to come and say hi. So I would like pop down and it was basically like showing your respect. I was like, Hey, Freddie, what's going on? You know, I would say hello, but he, he, he was an old man. It was inappropriate back in the day, though. It was different times. So yeah. I almost can't fault him. Um, but again, there there's there's more probably to the story. But I, I, I that to me is only hearsay. I can't even say specific. So, yeah. yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the Me Too stuff because because uh, you may not know this, but I mean, we both know that the wrestling business is probably one of the most egregious kind yeah. of kind of offenders in that area and always has been. They recently had their own version of that, which was called speaking out uh, hashtag speaking out where people. But it was mostly like current stuff. You know, people were calling out uh, things. But, you know, but you're right. I mean, stuff like that went on back then and not not even just in wrestling, but in entertainment and 
Oh, I, sure. Oh, I sure. guess the thing about it was, I mean, to preface this by saying Freddie had this unique arrangement with the McMahon family where he had been working for them for years. He had been a wrestling manager for them. And then when he couldn't really get around anymore because his knees were really bad, you know, they they wanted to make sure they took care of him because he was good friends with Vince's father. So they kept him on the payroll. But it was one of those things like with Arnie Skoland, he was another one where they had to find things for him to do. Like you said, he's looking over these cards. You don't really need him doing that. But they had to find stuff for him to do. And he had the office. And then I guess once he once it got to the point where maybe he was more of a liability than anything else, because you may remember you were there when all that all those scandals were going on with the ring boys and all the stuff with Mel Phillips. Right. Pat yep. Patterson, the last thing they, and this was probably like a couple of years after that, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, or, okay, yep, yep. And it was, he was a liability, period. Right. So the last thing they would have wanted was another one of those types of situations happening. But let me ask you, and I, I don't want to, I'm not going to just dwell on it and go on and on about it, but um, looking back on it, like obviously we both know that would never be tolerated today. And the wrestlers coming up now, they kind of, understand it's a different world and you're not going to really see the Freddie Blassies anymore to that degree. How much of it, like you were saying, you look back on it now and you think, Oh my God, that was really, I don't know, not entirely kosher. Were, were you in the moment of that though? Is it just that it was a different time and you didn't mind it as much at that time? Or is it that you were just going along with it? because you didn't want to get in trouble or make any waves or hurt anybody's career or anything. You know what I mean? Exactly what you just said. You didn't want to make waves. And that was always the unspoken rule was you don't get in trouble with the wrestlers or you lose your job. Mm. So if you are inappropriate on a photo shoot and you get a little bit too flirty and before you know it, the wrestler wants your phone number or wants to beat you down for a drink, don't expect to have your job when you come back from that photo shoot next Monday, because where it's going to get out and it's not their fault, it's your fault. So as a woman in a male dominated testosterone driven industry, you really had to keep your nose clean, your, your head down and, and not, and not be a woman. You know what I mean? And, and so for me, what I had, I had to do what I did. I literally had to go see Freddie <laughs> and go over a card, which didn't even have to be done. It was a waste of my time. But I, you know, they, uh, they literally arranged for a young woman to go right. and see once a week, which is a little bit. Now I'm looking back. I'm like, ew, <laughs> but right. Right. It could have been Howard that had to do that, but it wasn't. It right. was you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he would have wanted to see Howard. You know, that's the thing. I'm going to send you some fresh meat, Freddie. So, <laughs> But honestly, I, it's a combination of things. Yes, it was different times. I was new in the industry. I love my job. Um, and you just, you know, you did what you, you had to do. I didn't, I didn't leave there feeling bad about myself. You know, I just, I had a few laughs. I got to the point where this is safe. We're going to tell each other dirty jokes and guffaw and, and then I'm going to leave. <laughs> I didn't feel yeah. like it put his hands on me. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and I know this is my own opinion when I when I say these things, but I think also you do have to take into account the time like and and even even back in the 90s, you know, he was from a different time even then, you know, he was like from the 50s and 60s. And it's like in that environment, it was just so completely commonplace that 
for someone to even think that there was anything wrong with it would take a very kind of high level of meta thinking to think outside the box. How we've I, evolved. Right. It, it, we've evolved. And, but it's a world of difference if somebody was trying to do that now, at least in my view, sure. you'd, you'd have to say it, it was much, it would be much, much worse because back then you're being encouraged by society that this is okay. This is acceptable. This is just kidding around, but now that's not the case anymore. So people kind of have to know better, you know? Yeah. Here's, here's a weird, uh, we watched this game show network, me and my mom. And one of the shows is a match game way before your, your time. This is like from the 70s, and there's the host, and I watch him with the contestants, and he puts his arm right. around, he's squeezing her, and they kiss on the lips, and I'm like, what the hell? This is the 70s. So there, yeah. it, times were very different. And again, this is in the 90s in a professional environment where a young woman would feel she needs to do what she needs to do to keep her job. You know, I mean, I wasn't asked to do anything other than, you know, no one knew what I was doing behind closed doors. I don't think anybody knew that we were reading each other Playboy jokes, but <laughs> um, I did what I had to do. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, it's that tough. was cool, Brian. You didn't you didn't mess around because the women are the ones that would lose their jobs. That's that's so true. I and you know I remember there being this kind of rule. It was this unwritten rule. They would tell you two things. They would say rule number one is do not socialize and fraternize with the talent outside of work. That's number one. But the other rule was if the talent approaches you to hang out or socialize, you're supposed to say yes. They didn't want you to say no. So that you wound up in a catch 22. You're, you're, there's situations where there were situations. I mean, it was nothing like what the experience would have been for a woman working there. But there were times where. I would see a particular person that I knew was going to get me in trouble and I would run the other way to avoid the situation of them calling me and me knowing this is not going to end well. Like I think one of the one of the smartest decisions that I ever made and listeners can forgive me if I've told this story before, but it was Randy Orton and um, Trevor Murdoch, who were really good friends and, and on the road together. And I was uh, at TV and it was after TV, I think. And they were going out to a strip club and they invited me and another writer to come with them. And for a split second, we, we, we rolled it around in our head for a second. And, <laughs> and we said, OK, this could probably be fun. But then the other side, we said, no, this is going to wind up with us fired no matter what happens in there, no matter what. And we said no. And I'm glad I did because I wound up, you know, keeping my job. But. It, they, it puts you in a really tough spot. You don't know how you're supposed to respond. Yeah, but what's up, what happens on the road stays on the road. That was the other like unspoken motto. Yes, I remember even there would be times when um, if there was a female employee that was go an office employee, like who wasn't normally on the road and she had to go on the road for some reason, especially look, I mean, let's be realistic. If she was young and or attractive and she's going on the road they would feel the need to send a male employee to go with her almost like a chaperone to make sure that she was okay. Like I, I've been in the position of being that person. So I, I know that it went on where they would go, we're, we're they, it wasn't even fully articulated, but you knew that one of the reasons that you were going was to make sure that she was okay and that nothing bad was going to happen on the road because you could be, you could have a target on your back, you know? I'm literally thinking of how many times I've been 
at a live event backstage. And I don't think I've ever not been accompanied by another male employee, like another art director or designer or something like they had something to do. I had something to do. I don't think, I think, so I, I see your point. Yeah. Like I said, I don't think they would want to come out and say it, but, but I could, I could see through it in a second. Cause I'd be going, what am I doing here? I don't even yeah. need to be here, you know? And then I'd look, I'd look at her and I mean, she'd be okay. gorgeous. She'd so be gorgeous. Like a, a, you know, um, like a lion's den or something. I mean, yes. they're not, you would think they're better behaved. <laughs> um, again, I, I, I've always kept my nose clean. I, I've never seen anyone get in trouble. I've always heard about it after the fact when it could have been avoided. Again, don't have friendships. Don't have, don't, it, it's always going to get you in trouble. And I know too many girls that wanted to give their phone numbers to wrestlers because they just want to talk. You know, I'm on the road. It's like, mm. it's going to end bad. It's going to end bad. And it always ended bad. So anyway, yeah, they stayed out of trouble. Yeah. Well, good for you. You, you stayed out of trouble. You survived. And now you have you have all these great stories to tell, um, like, um, well, I, I wanted to ask, too, about uh, some of the pay-per-views that you worked on in particular. I do want to get to that because, you know, like I was saying, I've been uh, a fan. I was a fan at the time even that you were working there. So before, you know, because I didn't come to work there until about 10 years after you started so like some of the some of the posters and things like I'll see you post things on social media, things that you worked on and I'll go, oh, my God, that is like iconic to my childhood. Like like some post that like you may not have even thought twice about it. You know, some of these. What, yeah. what are some of the things, posters or or pay-per-view kind of themes and things that you may know fans loved and enjoyed that that you were a part of? Two of them that come to mind, and again, this is before we had the, the technology that we have with, you know, software and, and we were able to like do photo manipulations. We did Royal Rumbles and they were done with an illustrator who would, I guess, illustrate almost like a comic book style on the 30 participants. So whoever it was, they would be like, you know, coming down an alleyway and I we would have to work one-on-one -on -one with an illustrator that we'd hire and they would you know draw these beautiful paintings of uh of all of the wrestlers and obviously you know we would have to have the card up front who, who the 30 participants were so those are i think there were two of them that were illustrated i couldn't tell you the years but for the royal rumble posters those are those are always fun because they were we created original pieces of artwork we have yeah. Yeah. and there was another one it was um Oh, if it was Hulk Hogan, kind of like as a like almost like a monster size, and I can't remember. It was Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin, and I can't remember what they were, what city it was. And someone had the had to be New York because I think someone had the Statue of Liberty's torch. It's an it was an illustration. I just can't remember like which oh, WrestleMania which event it was. Should have did my homework. Yeah, no, I I know the one you're talking about. Now wait, you said Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin. No, I, or I think it was Steve Lawson and somebody else then. Maybe I'm wrong. Am I, uh, is, was it? it <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. No, but like the, uh, the Royal Rumble ones, though, I have to say, I mean, anybody, I, I will guarantee you anyone listening to this who's over the age of 15 <laughs> is, is going to remember and love those Royal Rumble posters. I mean, that's like one of people's favorite things are those big collage rumble posters. And, and I think that 
there was one rumble years later. I don't even know if you were still there where they try they did it again. It was like a throwback. It was like in the 2000s at some point. Do you were you there for maybe, that? Maybe I was 2005, so maybe it was after that. Or or maybe after we have to we have to do our homework. I wish I had um had a I should bring up my laptop. But I, if they did it, was it an illustration or did they try to do it as like a photo montage? Like No, they actually tried to do it. I, I say try. I mean, almost as if I'm looking down on it. They did it. They oh, okay. did. They did an actual, you know, painted illustration oh. again. Um, and it was meant to be a throwback to that. You nice. Know? It's nice. It was nice to see them come back to old stuff. Yeah, because, you know, you get it's so interesting. Now you get to the point when it's been around so long that now you have whole new generations of fans and even some of the wrestlers like um, the, you know, the wrestlers who are wrestling now were kids watching wrestling back then, you know, (laughs) as crazy as that sounds and it, and it influenced them. So now they'll react when they see things like the Royal rumble posters and stuff like that. Did you do, I'm trying to think of some, there was a really good, oh, what am I thinking of? I think it might have been Hulk Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter WrestleMania poster. That was probably before my time then. Yeah, I think it was maybe right after you started because this was the year after the Ultimate Warrior Hulk Hogan one. But maybe you maybe you weren't working on at that level yet. We, again, this is why I wanted to put a, all this stuff together in a coffee table book because oh, God, yes. somewhere out there this stuff exists. I would love to do year by year. Well, you can find them on um, on the internet. I mean, you can find little little tiny, you know, um, thumbnails of them, but I would love to see in a, in a picture book and a nice photo. Uh, I can't talk a coffee table book. No, and I I've, think, yeah, I don't know where all this stuff lives. I have stuff. Some of my other, like, you know, art directors that are still around that probably have these things, hard copies in their portfolios zippered up and in, in storage somewhere. So I always ask them, it's like, I, my stuff's in storage. We've got to find all this stuff, photograph it, share it. I would, I, even if it's just a digital, representation it'd be so cool to share it again because i think a lot of this stuff is going to get lost yeah so so you mean wwe didn't hoard all the all this stuff or what that's a sad story we did hoard stuff for a very long time and then there was a period of time after i was gone and they kept debbie bonanzio on who i have great respect for she was very much involved in the birth of creative services it was her her department and then she kind of phased out. She kind of went part time, but she was kind of in charge of cataloging things. And I just know after she was gone, I heard from Gail and Sue, people that are still there. Yeah. They threw out a lot of stuff. They just tossed it like they didn't they didn't care. Everything was digital. So it's like, who needs all this stuff taking up space? So that, yeah. and everything was like mounted and you know on boards and and it probably just got trashed. I'm not surprised because um, Debbie Bonanzio, um, who was the head of your department for a really long time. I mean, she goes back to the 80s there. I remember when actually to mention Freddie again, when he passed away um, and his widow, Miyako, was trying to catalog and maybe potentially sell a lot of his memorabilia. They sent Debbie and I went to, to, to work on like like curating it. And she brought me, yeah, she brought me along because she figured I would know who all the wrestlers were and I would know a lot of the old school stuff. 
And we went through, we were in his man cave, essentially going through like all of his pictures and films and, and memorabilia and stuff. And so I knew, I remember how meticulous she was about yeah. everything. And I remember even thinking to myself at that time, and I think I may have even mentioned it to her. I actually said, Debbie, if there ever comes a time when you're not here, I, I actually said this, like, what's going to happen to all this? Because it seems like you're the only one fighting this battle. And, you know, she was just sort of like, well, I'm always going to be here, you know, and obviously that's not true. So certainly I think shortly after she wasn't there. So right. I, have, I, I, I have to talk to again. I'm, I'm still you know close with Gail and Sue retired, but Gail's been with the company. Um, I don't know. 40 years she's never gonna she's never gonna leave and uh I, i'm gonna have to ask her if she doesn't knows anything about what's what's currently the latest on how things were archived if she has any knowledge of it because I, again i would love to be able to resurrect some of this stuff we're talking a, about yeah i'm sorry i have i have a cool story about a pay-per-view poster sure <clears throat> it was done for um over the edge which was the pay-per-view that was happening right after owen hart died I think that was the actual one. Uh, Over the Edge was the was the one that he died on in '99. All I know is the poster. Let's 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 research that. Yeah, maybe I'm, I'm right. But the poster we ended it went to print and we never released it. Vince wouldn't let us release it. It featured Undertaker. I remember it was like purple and it was it said Over the Edge and Vince made us kill it. So we, we printed all these, I don't know how many thousands of posters and killed it. But I actually, and I don't know if you want to even, I, maybe I don't want to be knowing this, but I, I stole a couple. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I actually gave it to um, a big wrestling fan, a big collector, who was my Aerosmith hookup that got me all those like front row seats for Aerosmith. So I literally traded this, this never seen um, poster, this really cool piece of memorabilia. But I, I, Vince just didn't want anything out there that said over the edge. Yeah. He was was so sensitive to that. Yeah. That's why, because that was the show where he died. He fell to his death as we know. And the sad, I mean, our our irony of it was the name of the show was, was over the edge, which implies that. And so, I mean, obviously I guess understandable. You'd want to erase any mention of that, of that name. And certainly the pay-per-view name was never used again. Um, after that happened but um you want to um you, you're talking about uh, how some of this physical stuff was just discarded and i, and I want to point out how you know you said how things changed over to digital while you were there and i remember when i first got there it, w- it was 2000 and it was not long after that had happened because i i remember uh, stumbling on some of these closets and things w- which would be stuffed with and people need to understand this especially if you're young you know they didn't always used to de- design stuff with computer programs like InDesign and Quark and all that I mean there were physical you know when people say back to the drawing board there were actual drawing boards yeah. in these rooms with the razors and and rulers and pens and everything that was kind of being phased out. And um, it's kind of sad that that stuff, you know, maybe all that stuff that I saw is gone or, or, yeah. or, or maybe in people's private collections and things. Or again, it, it might be in some of our portfolios. I mean, we, that's how we created 
the the artwork that was going to be used on a poster or in a, in a newspaper was you know on on boards and was like pasted up with like linotype and we would have overlays and it was you know rulers and it was we we made the artwork we didn't just right. create it on our computers we made it with our hands really basically so when i say old school it's like that's really old school we all got computers at the same time no one knew how to use them no one knew how to use the programs they sent us to classes to learn um and and we all kind of grew up in the in the digital design world um at the time so you can see the evolution of you know what they do now compared to what we did back in the 90s it's like it's again it's like i like i'm, I'm embarrassed about some of the stuff that i produced but at the time it was really it was the best we could do yeah well it was it was state-of-the-art for the time yeah, i guess i mean it's what everyone else was doing i'm sure did, sure. did you uh work on because i know one of the things that they had a lot of back then that you don't see anymore is they would have like character posters, you know, that would be sold as posters. Like um, I remember there was that really memorable Mr. Perfect one where, where he's like the blueprint, you know, and he's designed like a blueprint. Yes. Ron Mellon did that. And it was absolutely stunning. Yes. Yeah. And they would sell them in the catalogs, I think too. Right. Right. In catalogs. Yeah. They'd be sold. Um, and uh, you don't really see those. I, I mean, I, now that I think about it, it doesn't seem to really be done anymore, but they were very popular back then. I have to say, I probably had a couple. Yeah, you know, you don't see a lot of actually, I don't even see a lot of wrestling T-shirts like I did even back in the like the early 2000s. And again, maybe uh, it used to be like you couldn't go anywhere without seeing, you know, one of the rocks catchphrases or Austin 316 or maybe I'm just not paying attention. But I don't think that they capitalize on the merchandise as much right. as they did then because I, 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 I mean, we had like we had. I don't even know, do they even have catalogs? And we don't have magazines anymore. <laughs> right. There's no, no, everything's online now. It's just what they used to call yeah. shop zone, right? They used to call it shop zone. And, and now it's, now it's just WWE shop or just shop, but they sell all that stuff on the web. And honestly, the, the thing is um, the t-shirts have probably been one of the mainstays that have never really gone away, like in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. But the thing is, like what you're talking about, the big difference was like if you go back to those Rock and Austin shirts and even like DX um, and with WCW, how they had their NWO shirts and things like yeah, that. Yeah. They, you know, wrestling was just a lot more mainstream at the time. So you would see people out in the wild with those shirts. Now, wrestling well, shirts yeah. out in the <laughs> wrestling shirts are hot still, but it's probably a little more of a niche thing. But nowadays there are whole websites even independent businesses like pro wrestling tees and and what a maneuver and sites like that that their entire business is basically selling wrestling t-shirts not not the official like wwe licensed ones necessarily but wrestling t-shirts in general they're hot but it's just in its own little bubble you know there there isn't uh there isn't an austin 316 shirt i mean that's like the hottest selling piece of merchandise probably in the history of professional wrestling or sports entertainment yep that's a, it's it's an icon for yeah, sure it is that's one of those where like i remember and, and anyone who's old enough remembers you'd be out in public i never used to see never as a kid people wearing wrestling shirts just out in public i would see them if i went to a show sure. or if i went to a convention but i don't even remember seeing people wearing hulkamania shirts when i was a kid out in just walking around 
but I started to see it with Austin 316. And I have to say, even before that, the NWO, and I saw it with DX. It was really, it was, that was a first for me where I was seeing, and that's how I knew in the weird way. I was like, wow, wrestling is getting really big. If, if people are just wearing Austin 316 to go to the supermarket, wrestling's getting hot. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, so what was that? What year was that? 90. Um, 98 i think is when the yeah, shirt came out or well he said actually it might have been before that because it came from when he 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 made up the catchphrase at king of the ring 96 when he was wrestling jake the snake who was a born again christian and he's and he goes you know you talk about your john 316 well austin 316 says i just kicked your ass or whipped your ass whatever it was and that was like Whoever was, I think somebody, maybe it was Bruce Pritchard or somebody said when they saw that or heard that, they just thought T-shirt, that's a T-shirt. And so if that's the case, then it might have even been like late 96 when he was still a heel. They hadn't even turned him into a good guy yet. I think they might have already still been selling those shirts. A great person that you should try and talk to, although actually this would be more of a visual thing um our our designer for merchandise cliff hall was just an incredible incredible designer and he's responsible for probably some of the most iconic t-shirts from that era that you should i i wish he could share some of his stuff with with everybody but again he's he's kind of like a podcast person he's more of a digital visual thing (laughs) well he Um, went to he went to work for tna he did. Um, yeah. I, and he might, I, he might even still be, be there actually. Really? Uh, yeah. yeah. He, he, uh, we were good friends because um, we both had our kids in Titan tots, which for people oh, that don't know, Titan yeah, tots was Titan. Yeah. <laughs> Titan tots was exactly what it sounds like, which is, it was the, it was the daycare center that was r- run by WWE. It wasn't just for employees, but if you were an employee, you got a discount like me. And it was right next door to the TV studio on Hamilton Avenue. But but Cliff Hall and I both had our our kids there. And I remember being sad when I found out he was leaving. And he I think at one point he even was mentioning to me about coming down there to Nashville. And he was going, you know, maybe they might want to start a magazine and all this stuff. And I remember thinking, I just don't want to move to Nashville, Tennessee. I'm sorry. I, I just have no interest in doing that. I'm glad he went there, though. I'm sure he made a big impression on them. He was he was one of our better, really, really, really talented designer. He was fantastic. But I think it also shows how valuable some of you guys are because, you know, you're you become sought after talent in the same way that wrestlers are sought after. Like like TNA also got um, Dave Sahadi, who was a producer of a lot of the TV the commercials and vignettes and things and they went after him and he's again he's a creative person may not be well known to fans but in the industry his his you know he's valued so that's the name in a long time but yeah i remember him yeah so see this is why i'm glad that i had you come and do this and i hope that you didn't regret it with some of the some of the stories that we dug up yeah i can i can ramble i know but uh I wish I had I wish I had the dates and the pictures and the images because again it's it's a long time ago and it's all it's all fog. But um when I do see things like again, you know, if I'm like perusing like there was an article about like the, the 10 or the 20 best 
pay-per-view posters. And of course I, I ran through them and it was like, again, it brought back these really good memories. And it's like, that's when I've been trying to get some of our guys, the old crew to say, Hey, dig up some stuff and let's share this because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's that weird t-shirt that you designed, or I designed like a pillowcase for Legion of Doom or something like that. And I think, and, and I got to dig up these old pieces of, of artwork because they're, they're cool. And now we can you know, share them on our Facebook page and let the fans see this stuff. I mean, it's, 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 it's getting lost. So yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that you gave me the opportunity to come on here and just babble about who we are, what we did and what I did. And, um, and yeah, I, 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 this is a lot of fun. I don't regret it at all. <laughs> good, good. Well, I think, I mean, I've thought about that coffee table idea. I just think there's so much that could be done. I mean, even if WWE want, would be interested in doing it themselves. I mean, for God's sake, that they, they probably have a, a lot of great things there that they don't even realize oh. that fans would love to see. Like I said, there's this whole nostalgia business. Like you even mentioned the Legion of Doom pillowcase. Like, like I don't know if it was a whole bed set, but I remember seeing that as a kid in the in the the, the merchandise catalog. I know exactly what you're talking about. My, I I'm really proud of that. It's crazy. <laughs> Ultimate Warrior one too. <laughs> oh man. Wow. And again, we we're we're not getting any younger and we did just lose one of our own um our beloved eli zigdon passed away and he was one of our really really incredible artists so i said to our our, our guys it's like we've got to start sharing our stuff because you know otherwise we just take this stuff with us you know yeah. it's like let's 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 get it out there let's let's share our stories our memories um any kind of like memorabilia that we have I mean, like you know, it's 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 share it because there are people that do appreciate it which which i appreciate well hopefully by doing this maybe this could be a step in the right direction if people hear this and you know take an interest and i know i, I want to have you back at some future date because what i'll do then is i'll i'll actually do my research and i'll call up some specific posters and and ask you about yeah. them I think we definitely need to do another one at, at a later date, but this has been great, Deb. I can't thank you enough for, for agreeing to do this. A lot of fun. Yeah, let's definitely, definitely do it again. Cool. There you have it, folks. One of my former colleagues from my time at WWE, Deborah Jazway. And I hope, I really do, that that was as informative and as insightful for you as I had promised it would be. I, I, um, I'm hoping that you got a kick out of her perspective of working behind the scenes at WWE. And, you know, we're going to be doing more of those in the weeks and months to come. Of course, I will let you know when I get some more former Titan Tower colleagues on board here for Shut Up and Wrestle. But uh, in the meantime, though, we have some other guests lined up for future weeks. Next week, I'd like to say um, my guest, this is a cool one because he's a fellow historian, fellow wrestling writer and writer of history books and biographies on wrestling. Um, and he is Bertrand Hebert, who you may know as the author of um, The History of Montreal Wrestling, Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs. He's also written, uh, co-written a lot of these books with Pat LaPrade. Um, he is also the author of the biography of Pat Patterson, Accepted as well as the, uh, of course, biography of Andre the Giant, Eighth Wonder of the World that just came out. And so we had a lot of very interesting things to talk about with the history of Montreal wrestling and beyond. So he's coming up next week. 
I've also got people like um, Dave Dynasty, of course, historian and podcaster on the WWA Indianapolis territory. We had a lot to talk about, as well as David Marquez. He's going to be coming up in the weeks to come. The announcer, promoter, TV producer. You may know him from the NWA and other places. Um, he's going to be coming up. Had a great conversation with him. And of course, saving it for the week of the book is Rob Van Dam. Don't forget, Rob Van Dam. The week of April 13th is uh, going to be coming to Shut Up and Wrestle. Of course, the reason being that he wrote the forward to my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Chic, which comes out April 12th, very soon, just a few weeks away. You can pre-order it on Amazon, of course, and if you pre-order, you will get priority in terms of who gets the book first, because I've been told that some people that pre-ordered will actually be getting it on the day of release itself, April 12th. Can't guarantee that for everybody, but it makes sense to put in your order so they don't run out. Um, as far as other things that I work on, of course, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. You can buy copies of Pro Wrestling Illustrated at getpwi.com. Inside the Ropes magazine, you can pick up copies of Inside the Ropes magazine uh, at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Also, if you're looking for me, I can be found on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. If you go to Facebook and you look up Pro Wrestling FAQ, you will find a lot of the wrestling content that I post, as well as um, links to my author webpage if you're looking to see what I have been up to. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And remember, be good to your parents. They've been good to you. So long, wrestling fans. 